Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Bernie May, in his book, entitled Learning to Trust tells a a poignant illustration or story, actually it's an old story, of a father and his son. The father was wanting to teach his son about trust and so he coaxes his child out onto the back porch of their home. He stands the boy up on the railing of the back porch and goes around into the yard and he tells his son, come on, jump, I'll catch you. I promise I'll catch you. Go ahead, just take that leap, I'm right here. And after much coaxing and and time trying to get his son to jump off the railing into his arms, the boy finally takes that leap of faith and trust, and the father steps back. And the kid hits the ground. And after wiping off the dust and brushing back the tears, the dad said, now let that be a lesson to you. Never trust anyone. In 22, going on 23 years of ministry, I have met with a multitude of individuals in my office, over lunch or breakfast, that that's their story. Their story is they were raised never to trust anyone, or if they weren't raised that way, there were situations in life that caused them much harm, or they were betrayed, or some tragic incident happened in a relationship to where they determined, I will never trust again. And that may be your story this morning. Those of you at home, maybe I'm speaking directly to you. But here's the problem with that. We were not created not to trust. We were created with this innate quality to trust. Look at a child. And now imagine the child that Jesus says, you must become like one of these little ones in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says that in the Gospels. What is it about children that is so amazing? It's that they're innocent. We might call them naive, but let's be honest, it's trusting, isn't it? Isn't it a sad testimony of the fallen world in which we live that children grow up not to trust and the naivety wanes and goes away or the innocence falters or fades over time? Why? Because they realize not everything is as it seems in this world. But I ask you the question, were we created for this world and to live in distrust? No. And let me lay the groundwork this morning before we get any further in this message. We do live in a world that is very dangerous, that's broken and fallen, and there are many things that are not trustworthy in this world. Do you understand? And I'm not saying you should willy-nilly walk outside of these doors and trust everything you see or hear, because there's a lot of falsehoods and lies in this world. The only way to determine or understand the truth from a lie is to understand what truth really is. And truth is not a relative concept contrary to popular opinion these days. 
We've so allowed postmodernism and philosophical thought of postmodernism to infiltrate not just our educational institutions, but even our churches to the point that truth is a relative concept. But truth is not relative. Truth is truth, no matter what you want to call it. But the ironic situation we find ourselves in today is we can see somebody on TV or in the news or in the public arena saying one thing, but knowing that they said the total opposite, not even months ago. So what is it? Is it this or is it this? Who do you trust? If there is no basis for trust, then you can't trust anybody. But I contend there is a basis for trust and a basis for truth. And that person is Jesus. And now that sounds like a Sunday school answer. But again, the one verse you hear me quote more often than not from the stage is Jesus' own words to his disciples in John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And why is it that he can say that? Well, C.S. Lewis says he's a liar or a lunatic or something worse, or he is who he says he is. He can't just be a good prophet or a good teacher or somebody to model yourself after. The claims that Jesus made about himself either make him true or a liar, a lunatic, or even the devil himself. So what do you choose? I want to talk about peace from the perspective of trust today. We're going to look at a story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And yes, I'm reading the whole chapter. And I will not, I, I'm going to really try to refrain from stopping and giving you commentary along the way. Because I, it's really, really hard for me not to stop and say, oh, you know what that means? And it may not even be relevant to the message today. I'm going to try to stay on track. So I'll need your help. Okay, uh, you say, okay, keep moving. No, just kidding, don't say that. Those of you at home can say that because I can't hear you. Okay, that wasn't funny. All right, here we go. First Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we're gonna start at verse one. This is the famous story of David and Jonathan. Now, David and Jonathan have a very strong bond. They're the best of friends. I don't know if you've ever had a best friend before, but a best friend is someone that not only you can confide in and trust, but there's somebody who, who you feel connected to at a deep, intimate level, not sexual, but somebody who is just, you're like bosom buddies. You're paired together for life. Okay, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about friendship. And those, those friendships don't come along very often. They're very few and far between. It should be the norm. In God's perfect world, it would be the norm. But in the world that we live in, it's hard to find somebody you trust like that. And so we come up on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is later on in their friendship. And, um, and, and there's, this, there's this point to where they're now having to part. And they will never see each other again. They've been together for 15 years, according to Scripture. If you kind of look at how long they were friends together, they met right after David slew Goliath, the giant on the battlefield. You remember the Philistine Goliath? 
And so he does the sling and the stone and he falls and he cuts his head off with Goliath's sword, so on and so forth. You remember the story. Even if you aren't familiar with the church or the Bible very much, my guess is even in popular culture, you've heard the story of David and Goliath. And so right after that battle, David is now talking with King Saul who tried to get him to wear his armor out onto the battlefield, but he's like, no, it's too big. And so Saul and David are talking, and Jonathan is just in the wings. And after Saul and David finish talking, it says that David and Jonathan met. And it says they became fast friends. There was a bond between them that was inseparable. There was nothing that could ever break that bond, no matter what. And from that day forward, they were best friends. It says they loved each other. Now, some weird misconstrued and uh, (laughs) misguided um, theologians will say that it was a sexual love and they were actually homosexuals. No, it's not. You can actually love a friend. Did you know that? You can actually have a very close bond and affection for a friend that is non-sexual. Okay? So let's clear that up. I'm not coming from that vantage point. They were the best of friends. And so now Saul becomes jealous. And over the course of 15 years, it says that the Lord allows an evil spirit to basically have his way with King Saul. Because King Saul has fought against God his whole kingship for the most part. He's decided to disobey God and do his own thing, do, do things his own way. Do you ever do that? And find out, oh, that's, that's not very good, right? And when we try to do things our own way instead of God's way, we oftentimes mess things up. And so he's corrupted by this evil spirit, and he hears the chants, and C-H-A-N-T-S, chants of the people who saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And so Saul becomes jealous. And from a certain point in time, he begins to have it out for David. Jealousy will lead us to some very atrocious behavior, sometimes even to the point of death. Have you heard of crimes of passion where somebody kills somebody else in a crime of passion and now they're in prison because they murdered somebody? So Saul has this crime of passion. He's jealous of David. To the point now where it's really getting dangerous for David to hang around anymore. And so David says, listen, your dad has it out for me, Jonathan. I need you to help me out. I need to find out, is he really wanting to kill me? Or is, this just, is he just angry? And Jonathan and David have this conversation. So David is now on the run because Saul is trying to kill him. And David fled from Naoth at Ramah and found Jonathan there. And he says, what have I done? Have you ever asked that question? What did I do wrong? You ever ask that of somebody who's mad at you and you don't know why? What did I do? Just tell me and I'll fix it. What have I done wrong? David exclaimed. What is my crime? Now, how have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me. What have I done so bad that deserves capital punishment? Oh, that's not true, Jonathan protested. My dad doesn't want to kill you. 
You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. This isn't going to happen to you. And then David took an oath before Jonathan. He says, swear to me. Swear to me, basically, is what he's saying. Your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why would I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. That's pretty intense. Because if you notice, that Lord word there is all caps all the way through. That is the holy name of God that God gave himself at the burning bush to Moses. He's talking big, big trust here. He says, well, all right, tell me, tell me what I can do to help you. Jonathan realizes his best friend's in distress. He thinks his dad's going to kill him. Uh, all right, what can I do to allay your fears? What can, I help, what can I do to help you out? And David replied, tomorrow we celebrate the noon moon festival. Now, it's not a cultish, fe cultish festival. If you go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the Jews were required by the law of Moses to celebrate certain types of festivals. So every new moon, which happened once a month, they would come together and thank God and pray to God and celebrate this festival of the new moon. Uh, it, it was just something to get together. You know, we we never need a reason to come together and eat, right? Right? You bring your best food, or it's a potluck, uh, it's so-and-so's birthday or anniversary, or, you know, we, we're taking the cast off of the broken foot of this one. I mean, we just don't need a reason to celebrate. So they had these celebrations. They had a ton of them. And so David says, tomorrow, see, I told you I'm digressing. I told you I wouldn't do that. Let me continue. Sorry about that. Tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. I have always eaten with the king at, his, uh, at the table with the king on this occasion. But tomorrow I will hide in the field and I'll stay there till the evening of the third day. If your father asks where I am, tell him I ask permission to go home to Bethlehem for an annual family sacrifice. If he says, fine, you will know that all is well. He really doesn't want to kill me. But if he is angry and loses his temper, you'll know that he's determined to kill me. Just show me this loyalty as my sworn friend, for we made a solemn pact before the Lord. Or, why don't you just kill me yourself if I've sinned against your father? But please don't betray me to him. What he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, I know your dad's out to get me, but here's a test. Try this out with your dad. I'm not going to the New Moon Festival because I think he's going to kill me. And if he doesn't want to kill me, then he'll do this. But if he does want to kill me, then he'll say this. And so I'm going to hide out, okay? But swear to me this, if you think I've done something wrong, I'm at your mercy. Go ahead and kill me now. I won't even defend myself. I believe I am that innocent. But if you know that there is some sin against your dad or against you that I've committed, then kill me now. But promise me you won't betray me. Jonathan said, never, I'm not going to betray you. You know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I would tell you at once. And then David asked, how will I know whether or not your father is angry? And so they had to come up with a signal. Caca, caca. <laughs> right? Is that what they did? Well, let's find out. 
Well, he says, come out to the field with me. So Jonathan replied. And then they went out to the field together. And then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably, favorably about you, I will let you know. But if he's angry and he wants you to escape, or excuse me, if he's angry and wants you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so that you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. I glossed over that many times before until I was preparing this message today. And Jonathan makes a statement that he even knows very clearly that the Lord used to be with his father but is no longer with him. Because Saul had basically left the Lord. And the Lord said, fine, I'll give you what you want. You don't want me, I'll step away and give you what you desire. May the Lord be with you as he once was with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as you live. But if I die, treat my family with this unfaithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm this vow of friendship again. For Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And then Jonathan said, tomorrow we will celebrate the new moon festival. You will be missed when your place at the table is empty. So every new moon festival, all the commanding officers would gather around the table of King Saul in his palace and they would eat and celebrate together. But now this space where David would normally sit is empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid before and wait there by the stone pile. Jonathan says, I will come out and shoot three arrows to the side of the stone pile where you stand or where you crouch down as though I were shooting at a target. And then I will send a boy to bring the arrows back. If you hear me tell him they're on this side, then you will know as surely as the Lord lives that all is well and there is no trouble. But if I tell him, go further, the arrows are still ahead of you, then it will mean that you must leave immediately, for the Lord is sending you away. And may the Lord make us keep our promises to each other, for he has witnessed them. So David hid himself in the field. When the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall with Jonathan sitting opposite to him and Abner beside him. But David's place was empty. Saul didn't say anything about it that day for he said to himself, well, something must have made David ceremonially unclean. But when David's place was empty again the next day, Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? You see, he can't even say the name David. Jonathan replied, well, Davis earnestly asked me if he could go up to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, for we're having a family sacrifice. My brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he isn't here at the king's table. And Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. Not at David, but at Jonathan, because he could see through the ruse. You... Oh. The New Living Translation translated, uh, children, plug your ears. <laughs> Actually, I'm not going to say it. You see it on, if you can read, it says, you stupid son of a, 
okay? Literally, if you translate it, it can be translated that way. It is softened by other translators to be, you uh, son of a horribly bad woman, or something to that effect, okay? Huh? You son of a rebellious woman. Let's clean up the language a bit. Uh, So, I'm sorry for that, but you can read it there. But this is the intensity that Saul was angry with Jonathan. Sometimes we say things in our anger, right? That are rash, that are hateful, that are destructive. Saul has gone beyond the pale in his own life. God has withdrawn from him. And so now he is utterly and completely disturbed and depraved. That he would even call his son something so despicable. Do you think that I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as the son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go get him so I can kill him. Jonathan realized something at that moment. His dad wanted to kill David, and that David was right. Jonathan left the table in fierce anger, and he refused to eat on that second day of the festival. This happened right before they ate. For he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior, not toward him, but toward who? Toward David. The next morning, as agreed, Jonathan went out to the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. That would be horrible if he was a bad aim. I always picture this. The kids say, hey! You know, sorry, this is where my mind goes when I'm reading the Bible. (laughs) Sorry. Just a little humor there. I apologize. All right. Start running, he told the boys. I'm sorry, I still have that image in my head. So you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, and Jonathan shot an arrow beyond him. And then the boy had almost reached the arrow. Jonathan shouted, the arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered up the arrows and ran to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. Then Jonathan gave his bow and arrows to the boy and told him to take them back into town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from behind the pile of rocks. Then David bowed three times to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said, through tears, mind you, go in peace, for we have sworn a loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to town. And they never saw each other again. It would be years before they would even have any point of connection And it would only be after the grave, after Jonathan had passed. Here's the key point this morning. The bond of peace requires trust. I mean, this is really simple. 
You cannot have peace if you do not trust. Let me explain that again. I've heard people, as I told you earlier, say, I can never trust anybody. I promise you that person or those people who say that, maybe even you're one of them, cannot have peace if you do not learn to trust. Now, it doesn't, again, mean trusting willy-nilly everything you see or hear. What it does mean is trusting with confidence in those that you have faith in. Okay? How does this play out in this passage? Where David trusted Jonathan with his life. Here's the, here's the, tr- here's the reality. David so- told Jonathan, listen, we're, you're my friend. I love you. I trust you. I trust you to tell me the truth. But if you're going to betray me, go ahead and kill me now. I'd rather you kill me than your father kill me. Okay? Because if you're going to betray me, it's going to hurt worse than if you just go ahead and shoot an arrow through my heart. But I trust you, Jonathan. I trust you to give me the truth. Biblical scholar and Walter Brueggemann explains the commitment to the friendship between Jonathan and David in this way. Listen to what he says. The term love may refer both to an emotional attraction and a political commitment. The action that Jonathan gave David in giving him his robe and his armor is this dramatic act that seems to transfer David, uh, Jonathan's right to the claim of the throne. So when did David get the robe and the armor of Jonathan? If you go all the way back to 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, remember he had just slew Goliath, after David finished talking to Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond of love between them, and they became best of friends. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Keep your enemies close, right? From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David. This is when they first met. Because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his royal robe of a prince of Israel. The next in line for the throne. He takes that robe off and he gave it to David. Together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Do you know what Jonathan was signifying in that bond of friendship? He's basically saying, I love you more than I love my status. I care for you more than I care for what my future looks like beyond this point as a king of Israel. He's basically saying, I'm more loyal to you than I am to stepping up into kingship. Do you see what's going on here? See, this is what biblical scholars will say. When you, get, when you go through this action to give these things, the way the prodigal son, when he came home and the father restored him by putting the robe on him and giving him the ring, do you know what he was doing when the prodigal son came home? He was restoring him to royalty within the home. He said, you are my son, you will not be my servant. You're gonna be an heir to all that I have. That's in essence what Jonathan is saying to David. We're brothers now. You're just as much of a prince of this kingdom as I am. And so I'm vowing loyalty to you. Is there something, is there something or someone you trust like this in your life? 
Is there something or someone you trust like this in your life? See, trust is this natural outflow of an image bearer of God. It's the world that corrupts our trust, but the kingdom of God should restore our trust. As believers in Christ and as kingdom citizens, as image bearers of the one true God of all heaven and earth, we bear the image of one who is trustworthy of one who can be believed and trusted with everything in our lives, even when life doesn't go our way. And so we can stand assured in him and have faith in him. When we stand on the railing of that fence of faith and take that first leap, guess what he's not going to do? He's not going to step back. The second thing we learned this morning is that Jonathan trusted David, or Jonathan trusted God's anointing on David's life. Jonathan trusted God's anointing on David's life. How do we know this? Look at verse 16 again in chapter 20 of Samuel, 1 Samuel. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. Who was David's enemy whenever Jonathan was saying that? Who wanted to kill Saul? Now think about what Jonathan is saying. Jonathan doesn't want his dad dead. Do you understand me? He's not like, I wish my dad were dead. No, he's saying, listen, any enemy of yours is an enemy of God because you have an anointing on your life. I could see that. I know it. I know you intimately, David. I know that. And may the Lord destroy all your enemies, even if it means the destruction of my own family line. That's trust. But it's also more importantly trust in God, that God will reign supreme. And Jonathan made, a, made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. The sad fact is that so many people fight their way to the top. Would you not agree with that? Okay, I don't know if you work in, in workplaces where you don't trust your coworkers, you don't trust your boss, you don't trust... Anybody, and maybe you have a reason not to, okay? But you yourself don't have to become untrustworthy in the process. Do you understand what I'm saying? The tendency in our human nature is that when we don't trust, we also don't give people a reason to trust us. And it's subtle at first. We, we, think, um, we think, I'll stick it to them right? This vengeance idea or this revenge idea. What did David do to Saul to make him want to kill him? He got the accolades of the people. Not by his own choice. The people just praised David more than they praised Saul, and Saul didn't like it. But Saul was already on this track of destruction himself. He didn't need much of a push, and this was the tipping point for him, so much so that he hated David. He hated what David was becoming. He hated that David was getting more than he was, even though he was in the place of power and authority. When others around you are untrustworthy, do you become untrustworthy too? Or are you to be trusted? Where do your loyalties lie? See, in Colossians 3.23, Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae. And in Colossians 3.23, he reminds the, the Christians there that when they work, they are to work as if unto God rather than to work as if they're working for man. Why would he tell them that? 
Well, he tells them that because even their work is an act of worship. Whether or not their boss is trustworthy, nice, good, or their co-workers really live up to what they claim to be is irrelevant in this world. 2,000 years ago, Paul writes this to the church at Colossae. It's just as relevant today, the truth of God's word, in that are you living a trustworthy life and a loyal life in your workplace? Or are you giving your boss and other people reason to scoff and to sneer at you? Rather, give them a reason to scoff and sneer at you because they're jealous of you actually doing the right thing rather than giving them reason to scoff and jeer at you because you're not living up to really what you should be. Some, one of the way we, ways we try to raise our kids is leave something better than it was when you first came to it. Has that always fleshed out? No. But it is a common theme in our house that when you come up on the scene of a place or uh, when you come into an environment, make sure you leave that environment intentionally better than when you came into it whether physically, emotionally, or otherwise. See, as light and salt, Jesus says you are the light of the world. You are to be salt. We talked about this in eighth grade Bible class the other day, and I won't call out my students who's in here because he would be kind of weirded out by that. But we, we talked about light and salt. And what does light do? See, light exposes and or illuminates the environment, doesn't it? If you go into a dark room, you can stumble around in the dark. But if you hit the switch on the wall, what happens? You don't stomp your feet. You, you don't trip over things. It illuminates the environment you're in. So as a believer in Christ, when Jesus says you are to be light, when you come into any environment, what are you to do? To shine. To, but let me, let me explain. When you come into an environment that's dark, some people don't want the lights on. Do you understand what I'm saying? And when you turn on the light in a dark place that people want to stay dark, do you think they're going to be happy with you? So David comes in on the scene. He slays Goliath, a light pops on because he's saying, I trust in the Lord God Almighty. He can help us be victorious over the Philistines. Why aren't you going onto the field? And they're standing, shaking in their armor. Saul, who should have been leading the army to battle, was also in his tent, shaking for fear. They had forgotten the one in whom they had believed in and who they should be putting their trust in. But David comes into the dark scene of battle and he shines a light where darkness had once been. And he goes to Saul, who is God's anointed for the day, and says, why aren't you taking care? What's going on? How come nobody's... He's like, if nobody else is going to do it, I'll do it. And Saul... I just find the imagery of this in 1 Samuel 17 where we see this picture unfolding is Saul, who's a much bigger guy, stronger. He's the king. Do you get this imagery of, well, here's uh, David, 15-year-old more than like, shepherd boy who hasn't even grown into young adulthood yet. Saul's saying, well, if you want to, uh, okay, and here, try on my battle armor. 
What a wimp. I mean, you cannot help but disrespect this guy. But David comes onto the scene seeing with full clarity the truth of the situation and that God is for them, not against them. All they have to do is take the battlefield. When did we see that before? We saw that in the book of Numbers. When the spies went into the land and they came back after 40 days of being there and they said, there's no way we could take this space and this place because the people there are too large and too big. They'll squash us like bugs. But Caleb and Joshua come back and say, no, no, no. God's got this. If he's led us here, he's going to see us through this. Do you see where the trust levels are? I don't know if you trust in God's anointing or not the way Jonathan trusted in God's anointing on David's life. But do you trust in God's anointing in the here and now? Or do you think that was something that just happened in biblical days? Do you believe that God has led you to a place where he's saying, I want you to step out and trust. I got this. It's going to be hard at first, but I promise you I'm with you the whole way. You're going to take a few blows, but it's not going to knock you down. Okay? I mean, you, you're gonna, you may get beat up along the way, but trust me, I'm right, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm going with you. Remember the blows that you're getting? I got two. It's okay. I'm with you. Who do you trust? See, oftentimes we don't trust that God's got this. And so we, we, we cower in fear in our tents waiting for some little shepherd boy to come along so we can put our armor on him and see how it works out. If they make it through, then maybe I'll go. I just don't want to be the first one. We're called to be light. We're called to be salt. Because the one in who, who has called us is trustworthy. See, light does another thing. We're excited about light coming onto the scene again here in Western PA because we haven't seen it in a while. Right? And we're excited for warmer weather. What does light do to viruses? It's a purifying agent, correct? Ultraviolet light has this destructive power against bad things that want to invade your body and hurt you. And so I've been reading some articles, medical journals, that they're excited about spring springing and sprunging or whatever, and then summer's on the heels of it, and we're going to see even with the vaccination and all this, we're going to see even lower cases. So light not only illuminates, it purifies. What does salt do? Salt does preserve, doesn't it? I was telling the students on uh, Thursday this past week, I come from the South, and we have this delicacy called country ham. <laughs> and you don't refrigerate it. You just sit it in a vat of salt, and you rub the salt all into the, to the muscle of the ham, and just the goodness. <laughs> and uh, you, you let it cure for a while, because what does salt do? It purifies by killing all the bad stuff, the bacteria and all of that. And so when you let it set and salt for a while and you let it cure and hang and dry and then you slice off that first piece, it's just amazing. Mm. Mouth-watering, you know? And you're like, oh, I hate country ham. Well, if you grew up on it as a baby, that was what was in my bottle. <laughs> Pureed country ham. Right, Mama? 
I know you're watching. No, it wasn't. Don't tell them that. They're going to think that I raised you wrong. (laughs) Salt purifies, but what else does it do? It, It preserves, it purifies, but what does it do? Have you ever had a pile of vegetables on your plate and you don't like vegetables to begin with, but you know in order to stomach the vegetables, I've got to have flavor. I met some pretty bland Christians, ladies and gentlemen. And I, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, and they walk into the room and it takes the flavor down a notch. You know what I'm talking about? If you are one of those Christians, you need to be a little bit more salty. And I don't mean with your attitude. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you come into an environment, a Christian should raise the flavor. Shouldn't only purify, but it should raise the flavor. Because that's what Jesus was saying. When salt loses its flavor, what is it good for? To be cast out in the streets and trampled on. You should bring flavor into the conversation. You should bring flavor into the environment. Not a crass, rude flavor, which I've been accused of a time or two, which I do repent of, all right? But you should bring flavor. You should be flavorful. You should be raising the level of conversation. You should be raising the level of emotion in in the environment, not to the point of getting people angry, though that may be what happens. What happens you put too much salt on something? Right? You need to be just the right amount of salt. See, that's what Jesus was when he came into different situations. The bland Christians hated the salt, the religious leaders. We like our food bland. We like our religion dry. We love it. It's palatable. And they had convinced everybody else to eat this bland religion. But Jesus comes onto the scene, the very embodiment of God. And what does he do wherever he goes? He's healing people. He's raising the dead. How much more purifying can you be than that? To cure death. Ladies and gentlemen... The church isn't to be compromised by doing the things that God said not to do, but rather to be flavorful in maintaining the foundation in Christ and in the truth and showing people the way, the truth, and the life and realizing that there's freedom through that. Lastly, the bond of peace between David and Jonathan would extend beyond the grave. How did that happen? I love this name. Somebody, this has got to be a trend right now. Jonathan had a son. Okay, Jonathan would die in battle. It was already predicted by Samuel. <laughs> the Witch of Endor. Do you know what I mean? Sounds like something you'd read in the Lord of the Rings or you know, C.S. Lewis's line, which, The Witch of Endor. It's actually in the Bible. And so Saul, Samuel who the books are named after, was a prophet of God and the last judge of God from the book of Judges. And we read about him in the very first chapter of the first book of Samuel. But later on, Samuel in his old age dies. He had been the prophet of God to Saul. And so Saul trusted Samuel. 
So much that he decided after Samuel had died to go to a sorceress. A sorcerer. And this witch of Endor, he goes to her and he says, hey, I want you to raise somebody's spirit for me because I have a question for them. Do you notice he doesn't go to God? He goes to a witch, which shows you the condition of his soul at this point. He raises Samuel. She raises Samuel with some kind of incantation. Here's the spirit of Samuel in the seance saying, dude, are you serious? (laughs) Saul, are you kidding me? He's taking a good nap and you raise me through a witch? Uh, He doesn't say that, but it's something along those lines. Check it out. And basically Samuel says, enough's enough, dude. You're going to die in battle along with your sons. All right? You've pushed the envelope far enough. This, you know, I thought this one issue was the final straw. This is the final straw. God is telling you, you're done, done. And I mean like done as in die in battle. None of your descendants will ever sit on the throne again. And so that happens. David gets word that Saul and Jonathan and all of Saul's sons die in this battle at Mount Gilboa. And when the news reaches David, he's crushed. He's crushed not only for Jonathan, but for Saul, because he knew Saul was one of God's anointed. He had opportunities to kill Saul, but he didn't. This is how trustworthy David was, even when Saul wasn't. So the news reaches him. He weeps. He cries. And then later on in the story, some years later, Jonathan, it says, had about a four- or five-year-old son named, and this is where I think it should get trendy, Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. (laughs) Got to be careful. That could be a bad word. All right. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. He was being carried away by his nanny or caregiver, if you will, and she drops him. More than likely breaking his legs, hurting the joints or something. Regardless, because they didn't have modern day technology and and, uh, medical stuff, he was crippled from that point on. And so if you're a crippled male in those days, you're not cast out of society, but you aren't really leaned on very heavily. But uh, it says Mephibosheth ended up getting married and, and he had sons and so on and so forth, which is another story. But David comes one day, he's sitting, uh, sitting there, he's now risen to the throne and he's thinking back, as I'm guessing he often did on his friendship with Jonathan. And he asked one of his servants, he says, is there anybody from the house of Saul that still lives? Because what was customary in those days is for the main king now to wipe out anybody who could assume the throne. Okay? So I'm guessing the servant of David's thinking, oh, he wants to wipe out any other lineage or line from Saul so that they can't challenge him for the throne. And he says, let me, let me figure it out. And he figures out, there's a there's son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. And he says, I want him brought to me immediately. Can you imagine being Mephibosheth? <laughs> the king whose grandfather wanted you dead, or wanted him dead, you know, David dead, is calling for you. And it was customary, what I say, to kill off any descendants. Oh, this is my destiny. He's calling me. He's going to execute me. But instead, Mephibosheth gets there. And David says, listen, I made a promise to your dad many years ago. 
I loved your dad. We fought together. We were best of friends. Even when your grandfather hated me, your dad showed kindness and love to me like nobody ever has. And I want to show that to you because I love your, I love your dad. So I want you to be my privileged guest. Will you come stay with me here at the palace? You'll have a seat with me at my banquet table for dinner. This, I want this to be your home. And then the land that, that your granddad used to own, it's yours. I'm gonna re you can have it back. I'm reestablishing that land as yours for you and your descendants, okay? And we'll give you servants to farm the land. It'll be good. And Mephibosheth bows down in front of him like, are you serious? Who are you to treat me, just a miserable dog, with such honor? Well, he's the son of somebody that David trusted. Let me close with this. Pastor and author Tim Hansel, in his book entitled Holy Sweat, writes, One day, while my son Zach and I were out in the country climbing around on some cliffs, I heard a voice from above the wall or above me yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! You ever been hiking, especially around here in McConnell's Mill? There's these like huge rocks, and I could just picture Tim's son standing up on one of those rocks, like eight feet up, and and you turn around, hey, Dad, catch me. And he says, listen to what he says. He said, I turned around to see Zach joyfully jumping off the rock straight at me, just in time for me to go, ah, you know. He had jumped and then yelled, hey, Dad. He said, I became an instant circus act, catching him, and we both ended up tumbling to the ground. And for a moment after I caught him, I could hardly talk. He said, when I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation, Zach, can you give me one reason that you did that? And he responded with a remarkable calmness, sure, because you're my dad. You see, his whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because he knew that his dad could be trusted. Unlike the father at the beginning of the message, God is like the father in the story I just read to you with Tim Hansel. He can be trusted because he is trustworthy. As our worship team comes forward to close today, some of you need prayer. Okay? Actually, we all need prayer. That sounds silly. Some of you need prayer. Others of you are just perfect. You don't need any prayer for anything. That's not what I'm saying. Those of you at home, scratch that. That's not what I mean. We all need prayer. But some of you need prayer to overcome the trust that's broken in your life. You've been burned maybe one too many times. The way to begin to trust again in a healthy way is to trust the one first who is trustworthy because he will never let you down. And while all others may be untrustworthy in your life, he can be trusted. But see, the basis of trust is through him and in him. And if you don't have him at the center of who you are, you're not going to trust anybody or anything. 
It has to start with him, the one who is ultimately completely trustworthy, the one who said, because they can't do this salvation thing for them, they can't save themselves. No matter how hard they try, I'm going to do it for them because I love them and I want them to love me. We're coming up on Holy Week. The God who loves us so much sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He trusts that that you will believe even though some of us won't. But even if we don't believe, he is still trustworthy. And he still loves you. I don't know what burdens you brought into this place. I don't know what inhibitors you have in your life that hold you back from truly leaping off into the arms of Christ. But if you've held back anything, don't hold it back anymore. These altars that we have up front are not just pieces of furniture. If that were the case, I'd get rid of them in a heartbeat, okay? They're not fun to kneel at because the padding isn't great anymore. But the reality is there's something about, and I spoke with one of my sisters this week, there's something about stepping out and coming down. You can step out in your heart. God knows where you are. He can meet you exactly where you are. But I'm telling you, when you make a physical move, it breaks down the strongholds of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. See, the enemy plays, wreaks havoc on our minds. If you step out, they're going to make fun of you. Or they're going to think, or you say, well, I've been a part of the church for decades. If I step out now, they'll think something's wrong with me. Or they, you know, and, and we play these mind games with ourselves. It's the enemy who tempts us to believe that you need to stay put. Don't move a foot because people will question or judge you. I'm not begging for you to come down here, but I'm telling you, if you are being held back from coming down and you know that God wants to set you free from something, there's something about taking that first step, that leap. Trusting. Again, as I mentioned to you every week, if you want to come to my right, your left, this altar is signifying to those that are our prayer champions, warriors, that you need prayer and you want somebody to pray with you. Somebody will come and pray with you if you come down here or if you come along the front of the steps here. Uh, if, you, if you come to my left, your right, you're basically telling people, leave me alone. I've got some business to deal with with God. I just, just me and him. We're taking care of some stuff. But please don't leave without making that step, a step of trust, that step of faith this day. Father, In this place, as we pray often, we want you to be glorified. But the way that we glorify you is by this living sacrifice of our life that we give to you. Our bodies need to be that living sacrifice. And oftentimes we hold back parts of ourselves and only sacrifice a little bit. Remind us that in you, in Christ... Not only is there new life, but there's freedom from the bondage that we carry around. The lack of trust that we have that bleeds over into our relationship with you, or quite frankly, maybe a relationship we need with you that we don't have at all. I pray that you would break down barriers this morning, Father. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. 
break down barriers, take away inhibitions. God set people free this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.